once you build carbon into the prices of goods and services, like everything else, you know, it gets allocated appropriately. And you don't even have to think about it. Right now, because it's not being priced, all of us are making bad decisions about everything we do because we have no way to make the right decisions. And the beauty of the market system is once we price it, no one has to think about it. You don't have to worry about it because it'll all be priced in. You know, do I fly or do I take the train? Do I eat beef or do I eat fish? Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. I'm Manju Seal, Head of Sustainable Finance Advisory for BMO Capital Markets. Today, my guest is Dr. Bob Lederman. An economist, Bob is considered one of the leading authorities on risk management and quantitative trading on Wall Street. He's also well known for co-developing the black Lederman Global Asset Allocation Model in 1992 with Fisher Black. He spent 23 years at Goldman Sachs and at one point was Goldman's head of firm-wide risk, serving chairmen like Bob Rubin, Hank Paulson, and Lloyd Blankfein. He has been studying climate change for a decade now and shares today not only his insights from managing firm-wide risk, but how it applies to climate risk. As a board member of Climate Leadership Council, he breaks down for us the Baker-Schultz Carbon Dividend Plan, which is now supported by over 3,000 economists. He also explains why pricing carbon is imperative for informed decision-making. I sat down with Bob in New York City this summer, and as I expected from our GSAM days, his art of deconstructing complex topics kept me fully engaged. My name is Bob Litterman, and I am the partner at Kepos Capital and chairman of our risk committee. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to become familiar of your personal journey and how you came to be in the finance world, what was the primary focus of your entire career, and how that drives what you do today. Okay, sure. Well, I had a bit of a circuitous route to get to where I am. I started out as a uh, scientist. As an undergraduate, I studied human biology. And then uh, I was a reporter for a year. I decided to go back to school and get a specialty, which was what led me to then go to graduate school in economics. I ended up getting a PhD at the University of Minnesota and uh, started teaching at MIT. Uh, So I spent two years as an assistant professor there and decided the academic route wasn't for me. And uh, I went to the Minneapolis Fed where I was a research economist for five years. I also started a uh, software firm while I was there. And uh, while I was there, I got uh, tapped by Goldman Sachs to come to Wall Street. This was in 1986, so I started in fixed income research at Goldman Sachs. And uh, in 1994, Goldman asked me to leave the fixed income research area and become head of risk management. So that was uh, an opportunity that I took. I became a partner, head of risk management, uh, from 1994 to 1998, and I helped to develop the risk system that was deployed throughout the firm. 
1998, Goldman asked me to move over to asset management, and I took over the uh, uh, quantitative uh, group within asset management, and I stayed there for about 11 years, retiring in 2008. And uh, shortly thereafter, some of the folks at uh, Goldman that I knew left and asked me to join them. So I did and became a partner, a founding partner of this investment firm, Kepos Capital, uh, where I now head the risk committee. But when I left Goldman, I got very interested in climate change from a risk management perspective and uh, then uh, have joined a number of boards. Uh, including the Climate Leadership Council in particular, which is the sponsor of the Baker-Schultz Carbon Dividend Plan. I'm sure that's something we can talk a little bit about. But it was really my interest in economics and risk management that led me to think about climate change and try to understand how significant of a risk it is and, and represents. And uh, I've been working on that for the last 10 years. So I think uh, the next thing that would be really helpful is to understand, uh, you're very well known for the Black Lederman Global Asset Allocation Model. So for our listeners who may not be aware, can you describe it and who are the predominant users? Sure. Well, when I first came to Goldman Sachs, I was in the fixed income research area. And uh, one of my early projects there was to build a global asset allocation model. We had some uh, clients that were building global portfolios and wanted to have uh, a quantitative tool. Uh, so my uh, boss, the head of fixed income research, uh, asked me to work on this. Uh, I started by talking to Fisher Black, who was another quant at Goldman Sachs at the time, and uh, we built this model that uh, has become quite standard now in use. What was, uh, I think, uh, unique about our model was that we incorporated a capital asset pricing model equilibrium into the optimization. That was a suggestion that Fisher had made. Uh, and being a young quant on Wall Street, I thought, well, that sounds kind of academic. But when Fisher Black, you know, the, the uh, father of option pricing, suggests uh, something that sounds academic, you take it seriously. And uh, so that's what I did. And it turned out it was a great idea. And uh, it, the, uh, I don't want to go too deeply into the uh, Black Litterman model, but let's just say that a lot of people have found it very useful for optimizing portfolios. And, and portfolio optimization is a little bit related to climate in the following sense. Uh, what you're trying to do in a portfolio is to get as much return per unit of risk as you can. And uh, when we think about climate change, the real problem that we have is that we're not pricing the risk. And so uh, we're making uh, decisions that don't make sense as a society. And, uh, and that's leading us to take too much risk in the end of the day. So moving from theory to the practice of risk management, what are some fundamental insights you have gathered over the years as the head of firm-wide risk for Goldman Sachs, which is a highly complex ent entity, as most banks are as financial institutions? Sure. Well, there's, there's a number of, uh, I would call them, lessons of risk management that I, I would focus on. First of all, uh, you have to think about worst-case scenarios. 
you know, the, uh, the thing about climate risk is that uh, when people start talking about worst-case scenarios, uh, people say, oh, you're an alarmist, you know, particularly scientists are very conservative. Uh, but when you're a risk manager, the whole point of your job is to think about worst-case scenarios. You know, uh, senior management in financial institutions really wants to know what's the worst case. And the problem with being in a position of risk management is you know there's no answer to that. And I mean, maybe in some cases you could lose everything and that's the worst case. But in most situations, uh, you really don't know what the downside might be. If we think about how much could the stock market fall in a day, well, it's not going to fall to zero. Uh, but, you know, who knows? At Goldman, we used to have a rule of thumb in the equities division that we wanted to make sure that if all the stock markets around the world fell 50% overnight, we would still be in business the next day. And so we managed our positions uh, along those lines. Well, I would say, you know, you don't know what the worst case is, but management wants to hear something about uh, those kinds of situations. And so what we came up with in the financial world is a concept of value at risk, which was an amount that you could expect to lose with some regularity, but only with a small probability. So maybe once a year or once every five years, whatever it is, and it might depend on the context, you would ask, what is the, the value at risk, the amount that I can lose? Uh, so I better be prepared for that. Another uh, important lesson from risk management is that time is not on your side. You know, when you have a risk management problem, uh, it needs to be addressed. I can't think about a situation in my years as uh, head of risk management at Goldman where I said, uh, we've got a risk management problem and management didn't take it seriously immediately. No one ever asked me to come back next week. And that's because when you've got a risk management problem, uh, if you have enough time, you can solve almost anything. It's when you run out of time that uh, you know a problem can turn into a, a much worse problem or a catastrophe. And so uh, time is a scarce resource when you're managing risk, and, uh, and that means it's always an urgent uh, issue. Another lesson from risk management is that the objective is not to minimize risk. People would assume, gee, if you're a risk manager, you must your job is to minimize the risk. That's not at all the case. At, at Goldman Sachs, we uh, were very proud of making money from taking risk. And so we didn't want to minimize the risk. What we wanted to do is make sure that we got paid for the risks that we were taking. So the job of the risk manager is much more about identifying risks and quantifying the amount of risk and then you know, making sure that that's all understood and that you're getting paid for the risks that you take. Uh, the, the final uh, message from risk management is I think you have to be very cautious about trusting your models. You know, what, what we rely on in risk management are models to help us to quantify risk. And the problem with models is they're always an approximation. And there's always events and things that haven't happened before that might happen. And so sometimes economists uh, make a distinction between risk and uncertainty. 
And, and the difference is, in that context, risk is something that you can quantify. It typically comes out of a model, might be value at risk or tracking error or standard deviation or different statistical measures. Uncertainty is when you don't trust the model and uh, you don't really think that you can put a quantification on something because you know the future is not going to be exactly like the past. And these risks are very relevant when we start thinking about uh, climate change and the risks that are associated with climate change. First of all, the worst case scenarios are very difficult to, uh, to understand or know because we've never gone down this road before. We, certainly the earth has warmed and cooled historically, but not with seven billion people living on it and not in such a rapid fashion as is being caused by the buildup of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we're doing an experiment, and we really have uh, tremendous uncertainty about what the future might bring. Scientists can quantify up to some extent what we can expect. They tell us, for example, that if the uh, temperature increase is less than 2 degrees centigrade, uh, that's safe. And if we're above 2 degrees, well, that's risky. Well, of course, there's risk that things might happen below two degrees and we might not have something happen at two degrees. There's a lot of uncertainty about what's safe and what's not and how safe. Uh, when we think about time and, uh, you know, we don't know how much time we have. We've, we're doing an experiment that's never been done. We're creating this blanket of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We're probably going to have to suck them back out, but that's going to take decades. And so in the meantime, again, we're doing an experiment with uh, highly uncertain consequences. The sooner we stop putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and start pulling it out, the better in terms of risk management. Also, when we talk about the purpose of risk management being to price it, well, with respect to climate risk, the fundamental mistake we've been making is that we're not pricing the risk. It's, it's very important to recognize that incentives are what drive behavior. You know, incentive is a very profound word. Anything that changes behavior, uh, that motivates behavior, is an incentive. Uh, with respect to humans, of course, it's, uh, it's basically prices and wages uh, that create the incentives that we face and determine how we allocate uh, our time and our resources. Sometimes when I talk about the, uh, the need to uh, change the incentive structure, people say, well, Bob, you think people are rational. You're an economist. I don't think people are rational. My uh, dog, Bitsy, she responded to incentives. She didn't know you know, what incentives were. She doesn't understand the word, but everything, all animals respond to incentives and people are, you know, going to respond to incentives as well. That's just what incentives are. And so with respect to climate, the incentives go the wrong way. We haven't stopped yet increasing the size of the problem. What we've got to do is we've got to create appropriate incentives to reduce emissions. And so that really means uh, putting a price on emissions. And, then, uh, and, and, and the only issue is really how strong should that incentive be? So pricing the risk is what it's all about. And what that means with respect to climate change is it means putting a, a tax on carbon and uh, carbon emissions. So that's really uh, the key issue that needs to be addressed. There's other things that need to be done, 
but we will only solve this problem if we change the incentive structure. And then finally, I would just say, look, the uncertainty about climate models and about the future is, is, is huge. And so with respect to where should we be pricing emissions, that means there's a lot of uncertainty there. If you ask me what's the right price, uh, you know, uh, let me answer it this way. The UN a couple of years ago published a report in which they talked about the uh, limitations of economic models of climate risk. And what they said, they, they pointed out many limitations. But one of the things they ended up with is they said, look, the right price could be anywhere from $2 a ton to $200 a ton. And, you know, that's not very helpful. Well, I, I think they uh, exaggerate the amount of uncertainty, but but certainly no one knows what the right price is. I would say it's probably more between the range of $50 a ton and maybe $150 a ton. But there is tremendous uncertainty. We all have to recognize that. The models aren't that great. We don't know how people re will react to uh, pricing emissions. We don't know what technology is going to develop over the next uh, you know, 50 years. This is a very long-term problem. Tremendous uncertainties about what will uh, play out. And with respect to that uncertainty, uh, when it exists, you have to err on the side of caution, which means a higher price in this context, not a lower price. People have, uh, for a long time now, been focusing on the uncertainty and saying, therefore, you don't want to, you don't want to react too fast. Well, quite the contrary. The uncertainty itself creates risk, and that's why it's such an urgent problem. I asked Bob to explain carbon pricing for those who may be hearing about it for the first time and what it means for consumers. We then discussed the Climate Leadership Council and their carbon pricing initiative called the baker Shoals Carbon Dividend Plan. Well, there's a lot of ways to create uh, these incentives. And, you know, uh, there's some systems that are called cap and trade, uh, some systems that are uh, a carbon tax. Uh, I, I sit on the Climate Leadership Council, which has uh, the Baker-Schultz plan. We call that a carbon dividend plan. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, we could dig into the weeds about how the incentive is created, but I would just say what price and carbon really refers to is creating the incentives to reduce the production of uh, this pollutant of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You just mentioned Climate Leadership Council, and uh, you're a board member uh, of that council. So what are some of the goals of this council? Well, the goal of the council is to create a incentive structure to reduce emissions in the atmosphere, into the atmosphere. And I believe there are various corporations who are part of this council. We have what we call founding members, and it has uh, tremendous support from the business community. Let's start with the fact that we have many uh, energy companies, and, and we specifically went out to uh, try and develop a, a big coalition. So that coalition includes names that you uh, clearly recognize as leaders in their industry, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips, uh, Total, uh, are all, you know, oil companies that uh, belong to the coalition. Johnson & Johnson, the healthcare company, Microsoft, the software company, uh, Unilever, a consumer, uh, you know, company, um, 
Ford, GM are both uh, members, uh, and many others. So we have uh, really the entire leadership of the business community has joined and said, look, the right way to address this issue is through uh, the incentives provided by this carbon dividend plan. And uh, in addition, we've gotten support, almost unanimous support, from the economics uh, community. We have more than 3,000 economists who have said this is the right approach, pricing carbon. Uh, and that includes almost all of the, the Nobel Prize winners in economics. It includes the uh, former heads of the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, it includes the heads of the National Economics uh, Council in the White House. So uh, really leadership from, by the way, both sides of the political spectrum. There is no disagreement within the economics community that this is the right thing to do. And finally, I would mention the environmental community. We have support from uh, the Nature Conservancy, from uh, World Wildlife Fund, uh, and from a number of other environmental organizations. So what I like to say is we have support from everyone from ExxonMobil to the World Wildlife Fund. It's a coalition. There aren't too many people who aren't, you know, somewhere on that spectrum. It really sounds like a dream team, so, and has the potential of doing some amazing work. What I would love for our listeners to learn is uh, if you could share more about what the Baker-Shell's Carbon Dividend Plan is all about and why is Climate Leadership Council sponsoring it? It started a few years ago, and the basic idea was we need to have a bipartisan solution. You know, the, the problem has been a difficult one from a political perspective to uh, to get legislation. And so this uh, country has not yet created appropriate incentives. There are a few states uh, that have created some incentive schemes, but it's very difficult. And we could talk about why at a state level. It really needs to be uh, addressed at a national level. And uh, a few years ago, some of the elder statesmen of the Republican Party, Jim Baker and uh, George Schultz, uh, came together and said, what are some of the uh, basic principles that might lead to an approach that could generate a bipartisan uh, support? And, uh, and so they got together and wrote down a plan. It has four basic components to it. The first one is a price on carbon. And so uh, that's, that's the basic idea that would drive the reductions in emissions. Now, if you're going to put a price on carbon, uh, you get quite a bit of revenue. And the question is, what are you going to do with that revenue? Well, in the Baker-Schultz plan, the idea is distributed back on a per capita basis. So everyone in the country will get a dividend. And that's why we call it a carbon dividend plan. Uh, the dividend the first year would be something like $500 per person. So an average family of four would get about a uh, uh, $2,000 check uh, each year. And uh, now energy prices would go up, but uh, when you look net-net, something like 70% of the people in the country would be better off. They would get more money through the dividend than they would pay uh, in terms of increased energy costs. And it's not a random selection of uh, people that are better off. Of course, it's the people who don't consume as much fossil fuel, which is to say typically uh, people who are on the, you know, have less money to spend. So it's a very progressive plan. 
the people who would be better off are people who use less energy, and the people who would be worse off are people like me who are flying around all the time. So I think it's a very fair plan, and it should be a very popular plan. Another component of the plan is that when you put a carbon tax on, you would uh, disadvantage carbon-intensive industries in your country if right next door you had, or down the block, you have countries that don't price emissions. So what you have to do is you have to make sure that there's a border adjustment so that carbon-intensive uh, uh, goods are not imported into the country from countries that have uh, that are not pricing carbon. Now, hopefully, all countries will agree to price carbon. And one of the things that this border adjustment does is it creates an incentive for another country uh, to price carbon as well. If if country A has a tax and it has a border adjustment against country B, country B then has a choice of either putting on a tax and then having parity so that there's no uh, costs and, and it's uh, equally uh, uh, economic to produce goods in both countries, or if they don't put on a tax, then country A will uh, will tax the imports at the border and, and thereby get the uh, revenues. So obviously it creates an incentive for country B to do it itself and collect the revenues rather than let country A collect the revenues. Well, so that's a third uh, component of the plan. And the final component is what we call regulatory rationalization. There are a lot of regulations now that are intended uh, to reduce emissions uh, and do so in a very inefficient way. And so uh, uh, those kinds of regulations uh, should be rolled back. Now, we haven't determined exactly what those are, but that's kind of the basic principle. And in fact, with respect to all of the details, they, they continue to be work, worked out uh, amongst our founding members. So that's what being a founding member means, is you have a seat at the table uh, and can express your preferences as to exactly what the uh, uh, components of the plan are. And, and still, it's just a plan, you know. Uh, we don't write legislation. So our hope is to get enough uh, consensus amongst uh, a large group of uh, businesses in particular uh, that we can then get uh, consensus within Congress uh, along something along these lines. Obviously, Congress is going to write their own legislation at the end of the day. So is there a timeline or a, a plan as to when this might all happen? Well, the uh, time, uh, we don't have much time uh, to spare here, and I, I could talk about why it's so urgent, but I would say we would hope to get uh, our legislation introduced this year. We don't think it's likely to be passed this year, but uh, maybe next year or uh, the year after. Uh, but that remains to be seen, and uh, it remains to be seen, you know, who's going to be uh, sponsoring the legislation and all of that. We have set up a C4, which is to say a lobbying organization, and it's been funded by a number of our founding members. So we are moving forward with the uh, process of uh, uh, trying to get this uh, through, the, uh, through Congress and signed by, by the president, whoever the president is at the time. And, uh, and we're making really good progress. The, uh, 
The Democrats, of course, have been publicly calling for climate action for a long time, not necessarily for uh, our plan, uh, which hasn't really been uh, introduced uh, yet, but for things along these lines. And there's many other plans that have very similar uh, components to the, to the particular uh, uh, components in our plan. Uh, but uh, this is something that should have been done decades ago, to be honest. And, and we're kind of running out of time in a sense because uh, the, the risk is exploding right now. You know, if we had addressed climate action uh, 20 years ago, uh, it's very likely that the maximum temperature that we would reach would be something like where we are today, which is to say about one degree C of change. But given the lags in the system and the fact that we're producing more emissions today than we ever have historically, it's inevitable that we're, the uh, temperature is going to continue to rise. The problem is going to continue to get bigger for decades. And the uh, maximum temperature right now is headed toward somewhere between one and a half and two degrees C. Uh, best case is probably closer to two degrees than one and a half. And here's the scary thing. Every three years that we wait, uh, the uh, parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere today goes up by about 10 parts per million. So we're sitting at uh, uh, 415 parts per million right now, which uh, the historical level was about 280. Uh, so here we are, whatever it is, 135 parts per million above the historical average. And it's growing at the rate of 10 parts per million for every three years. And for every 10 parts per million, the maximum temperature goes up by about a tenth of a degree C. So if we're heading toward 1.8 and we wait another three years, then we're going to be heading toward 1.9. That is a huge difference and a huge problem. Just to give you an example, the UN just published a report where they compared the outcomes with a 1.5 degree maximum versus a 2 degree maximum. At 1.5, uh, the world is going to lose somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of its coral reefs. If we get to 2 degrees C, uh, we're going to lose, they said, greater than 99 percent of the coral reefs. So. You know, where we're at today, that could be a six-year delay could put us over that two-degree mark. So it's really urgent that we address this issue as soon as possible. The way to address it is to create appropriate incentives to reduce emissions. The support for Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, has grown exponentially over the last few years and aims to provide transparency to investors, lenders, insurers, and other stakeholders. The work and recommendations of TCFD will help companies understand what financial markets want from disclosure in order to measure and respond to climate change risks. BMO for One is a supporter of TCFD. I asked Bob for his view on this rapid development in the industry. Well, the TCFD is a good, it, it's a good effort to try and standardize reporting of climate-related uh, risks, as you say. It was uh, uh, motivated by something called the Financial Stability Board that was headed by Mark Carney, the uh, head of the Bank of England. And uh, it was a gathering of uh, the financial regulators together with the uh, energy companies, with investors, with uh, 
data providers and uh, a large group of folks who have done uh, a lot of work to try and create a standardized approach, basically scenario analysis, what's going to be the impact on each company of a you know, a set of scenarios uh, toward moving toward the low carbon economy. And uh, I, so I think it's an excellent way to uh, disclose information and start a dialogue between asset owners and management of these companies and, uh, and allow a, a comparison of the risks and uh, the actions being taken by various companies uh, in, in all the different industries to address this issue. So I think it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a complex process, and it's been moving forward slowly, and I applaud it. In the end, Bob and I talked about why developing countries need to take a lead on this issue and how countries will be impacted by climate change. He also makes a final case for carbon pricing and why action is required urgently. Well, of course, one of the things that is needed is to address the uh, issue of what some people call environmental justice, the fact that it's uh, typically, as you say, poor people that can't uh, adapt as easily to some of the uh, uh, effects of climate change, the impacts uh, on the coast of sea level rise, or more generally flooding, bigger storms, wildfires, or just the heat. Now, I would say that's true within the United States, but it's even more true when you start thinking about the impacts on developing countries around the world. So it's just imperative that rich countries like the United States uh, lead in the reduction of emissions. And to be fair, the U.S. has been a leader in reducing emissions. Today, we're only 15% of global emissions. But the right way to approach this problem is as a global problem, and what we need is to create a globally harmonized set of uh, incentives to reduce emissions. And so the U.S. should be leading this effort. You mentioned the uh, impact on biodiversity. That's just one of many dimensions in which this is an urgent risk management uh, nightmare, you know, to, to uh, put so many of the uh, species at risk. The worst case scenario, of course, is a collapse of ecosystems around the world to the detriment of uh, people uh, globally. And uh, that's why I'm very confident we are going to address this issue uh, because it is so urgent and we have to address it quickly and especially in the United States. So, Bob, you've been studying climate change for over 10 years now. And uh, as you look forward to the next 20 years of being involved in different ways, what do you think you will like your legacy to be? (laughs) Well, I hope I have another 20 years. (laughs) I'm sure you will. (laughs) You know, uh, to me, this is very personal. I have three grandchildren now and a fourth grandchild on the way. And I think about those grandchildren who are, you know, most likely going to live through the rest of this century into the next one, and they will experience this legacy that we have created of uh, a bubble of carbon dioxide that is warming the planet and destroying ecosystems. And, you know, if I can be part of uh, creating the solution by uh, pricing carbon, you know, that'll be terrific. And uh, my last question is, since we both spent a lot of time in asset management industry, 
if you were to think of a future in 10 years, what sorts of products or financial structures you can imagine uh, that could be in place to have more sustainable finance, investors looking at it, both at retail and institutional. So if you had to dream about it, what, what would you want to see? Well, let me say I would start with uh, carbon pricing because it's such an urgent problem. And uh, it's an example, though, where we can use the, uh, you know, incentives in the market to drive the solution. We've done that before with things like acid rain. So, but uh, climate is certainly the big one that's in front of us right now. Pricing the externality is an example of what happens when you don't get incentives right, and then, you know, what will happen when we do get incentives right. And right now, we're misallocating resources in so many different ways just because we don't have the right incentives. I think when you think more broadly about natural capital and, you know, protecting nature, it's the same thing. We have to uh, recognize the services provided by nature, and uh, when we recognize them, we will value them appropriately. And so that's, we will protect uh, nature, and, and we will protect biodiversity and, and all those good things that nature provides. And uh, so to me, certainly with respect to sustainable finance, what you're really talking about is recognizing the externalities associated with uh, diminishing uh, nature and, uh, and not weighing the future well-being uh, the way we should. Uh, when we put enough weight on the well-being of our grandchildren, we will certainly be pricing emissions appropriately. On behalf of BMO, I want to thank Bob very much for making time to be with us today and speaking with me on this important subject. Until next time, I'm Manju Seal. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.